0: Welcome to Political Point of View on Coast Access Radio 104.7 FM. In this program, we talk with politicians of all types, of all sorts, from local government through to central government, and including aspiring candidates. Sit back and enjoy.
1: Hi, well, listeners. Today is another day of a political point of view with Graham Priest. Today's guest, Gwen Compton, KCDC councillor. Now, Gwen, there's been a few things happen recently. Um, some of them have been somewhat controversial. And probably top of the list is the change in representation for the district at the next elections. Um, how did you arrive at the decision that you arrived at?
0: So, with the representation review, um, there's Obviously it's something you run every six years, you legally have to, and so we were due to run ours now. And there's a whole process of um, research out in the community, going and engaging with people and finding out what they think in terms of how they engage with council, how they think representation arrangements are working. They talk with us councillors as well, and they look at also around the rest of the country to see what other councils are doing, and they go away bring back a set of options for councilors to look at and that slowly gets whittled down based on sort of the uh I guess the expressed views of the group um, and then you 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 have to go out with a what's called an initial proposal to consult on um, and that was where we had the uh the three large wards and no community boards and then that goes out to consultation people give their feedback I think we had something like 500 odd pieces or more than 500 pieces of feedback on it the submissions rather Uh, so that all gets compiled we have public hearings so we had a day and a half of those and then we've just in the last week had a couple of public workshops to make changes and you can make changes to that initial proposal based on that feedback you need because you need to be able to show when this goes to the local government commission how you've reflected the, the submissions you've heard and so that's how we've arrived at the paper that we have uh, coming up at the meeting on the 11th, which is the proposal that will go to the local government commission for them to either tick or if it falls outside of certain thresholds or if someone objects to it, that causes them to look at those issues that have been raised in it.
1: Right. The proposal that was uh, put forward by council laws was quite different from that what was proposed by... This the um, staff. Am I correct in that? No. So
0: are you talking about the initial proposal that we consulted yes. on? No. Well, there were four options they gave us. So they gave us one that was, I think, um, was uh, small wards. They gave us a large district-wide only one, and then a couple of variations on those themes. Um, and we basically narrowed it down, and with those options you could have community boards or not with them. And so there was a... I think it was back in the end of July where we had a uh, briefing on that where councillors sort of went through and it wasn't a unanimous decision to go with that initial proposal that went out for consultation. I was one of the councillors who uh, didn't agree with that because I was in favour of having smaller wards so that would have been seven ward councillors and I was sort of ambivalent on whether or not you would have community boards in that model with the feeling that if you got smaller wards and councillors closer to their communities, you might not necessarily have them. But then we sort of uh, when we were debating having that whether that was going to be the initial proposal, we had the community boards in there and they argued a really good case about the value they bring to the table. So that's where I ended up voting against that initial proposal.
1: So what was the reasoning behind the majority of councillors opting for no community board?
0: You'd have to ask them in terms of why they favoured that. Well, if, they'd, I
1: think. if they'd front on the programme, I wouldn't. <laughs>
0: I think for, for some of them it was a case of we have to put something out for consultation, let's put this out and see what the reaction is we get, because you do have to put something in front of people to, to do that. I think for others they might have been able to see that if councillors could have more support then they could fulfil some of the roles that community boards play. And I sort of approach that they actually community boards, and this came through in the um, submissions especially that we got from the community boards, um, Paikakariki and Waikanae community boards in particular, is about the intelligence and the community outreach that they're able to perform at a much more grassroots level than councillors can, and they're not necessarily as limited as councillors are in terms of the various rules and things that we have to play by at the uh, bigger table, so...
1: And they've also got a statutory obligation to make sure that the council performs, doesn't it?
0: Well, they are another level of accountability on us, and that's one of the primary reasons. That's why Auckland Council, even when they put up the Super City, you had I think it was nine councils, the eight. Territorial authorities and the one regional authority—they were all merged in. But then they created twenty-one local boards underneath that, because there was that recognition that you needed something that was more granular than a territorial authority to get that community advocacy, to get that community um, accountability to the larger entity. So,
1: okay, with the consultation with the public, what was the general feeling there?
0: People overwhelmingly said that they wanted community boards kept. Uh, there was a bit of debate around what model they wanted. Um, some people saying they wanted fewer councillors, uh, and that was in part there's some people saying if you had fewer councillors that would save money. That's not necessarily true because that pay is set as a governance pool separately and it's irrespective of how many councillors you have. It's based on the size of the council, uh, and the organisation, the size of the population you're serving, the asset base and that sort of thing. So you'd have the same governance pool just split different ways. Um some people saying we should have more councillors because they felt that because the district was growing you'd have that ratio of people to councillors starting to blow out. Um, I think when we first did this representation review we would have had fewer than 5,000 people per councillor and now I think we're getting up nearly up to around 6,000 people per councillor by the time the next one of these would be scheduled to come around. So there's that sort of thing. Um, one of the big themes came through was around concerns about how Waikanai is underrepresented. So, they've gone, this goes all the way back to uh, the initial representation um, arrangement set up under this regime, which came in 2003, I think, is when the legislation kicked in in terms of when you had to start running these reviews. And so, back then, I think Waikanae was underrepresented by about 9%. Now, that's blown out to around about 20% in the last one. And this one, it's looking like it's about uh, 24 or 26% underrepresented. So, there's a lot of concern about how Waikanae's voice is being heard through this. So those were, I guess, the sort of two big ones. There were some people who said that um, we should just have all district-wide councillors and we shouldn't have any ward councillors. They were worried about a a lot of um, parochialism where people just focus on their own wards and their own towns. Um, and then some people, vice versa, wanted no district-wide councillors and only wanted the ward councillors. So they they thought that was a better way to sort of reinforce this idea that Carpentie um, is a string of pearls along the coast, and you want to make sure that each one, each town, has its own individual identity. So those were some of the themes that came through.
1: Right. And what's the proposal that's been hammered out?
0: So the one that got that's coming back to us uh, at the next council meeting is for what's called an adjusted status quo. So we'd still have the five ward councillors, we'd still have five district-wide councillors. There's some tinkering at the uh, boundaries to uh, just try and bring the, them slightly back more in line and that's in terms of the boundaries with uh, Waikanae and Otaki wards and the Paraparaumu and the Paikakurike and Raumeti wards. Then the community boards would stay and there's a proposal to have a subdivision on the Paraparaumu Raumeti Community Board and that means that you'd have some representatives elected from Umu and then some from Romati as well.
1: So it's quite different from the initial proposal.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is quite Different, and it's one that you know, from my personal view, and this is what I expressed in the, the workshop the other week, is it still doesn't address my concerns around the under representation in Waikanae, which is just continuing to blow out and is going to continue to blow out when you've got more retirement villages coming in here. You've got a lot of the um, greenfields growth that's planned for the district, is planned in Waikanae over the next decade as well. So, it's a situation that's only going to get a lot worse. It, depending on when the next representation review comes in. Well, the thing is
1: that there's going to be a government commission to decide the future of local government, so it all might go by the board
0: anyway. (laughs) well. Well, exactly, and that was um, Jenny Rowan, uh, obviously the former mayor, she presented to us and she made the case that actually we should just go back to the local government commission and say we're not changing anything because there's this big review going on to us, there's three waters reform happening, there's RMA reform happening. There's no sense changing things while all the other deck chairs on the Titanic are being shifted around as well. So,
1: it's mm. mm. quite a sensible one.
0: Yeah, well, it was, a, it was a very valid point. I think the local government commission sees it differently. They say actually you've got to carry on as if nothing's going to change, and that's that technically. But co- yeah, but this is the thing that legally they're correct in that you have to do this and go through the process, whether or not they would actually consider that as a as a reasonable excuse because obviously. The proposal we've got now would trigger the local government commission to look at the underrepresentation representation in Waikanae in particular. So that'll be quite interesting to see what they say about that because that was an area last time they said you had to consider that. So. Hmm.
1: Central government has dumped two really ma- major things on local government without really any consultation. One is the three waters. And the other one is the change in... Um, Building whereby you can put three-story buildings without requiring consent. Yeah, now, it's, uh, I, yeah. I was trying I,
0: to write a script for for my podcast um, the other week, and I was going to start doing the RMA, uh, but then I was like, well, "God, there's all, been a lot of news it, that's happened." And that, that
1: these well, were the two. It, big it all ones. ties in together. Yeah. And I was thinking about that. The last property that we lived until we moved into a retirement center. Uh, you could build a three-storey apartment building um, on that existing property. The next-door neighbour on one side could build a three-storey block of um, three. The next-door neighbour could build a block of six on his. So suddenly where there's three dwellings, you've got 12. Hmm. But if a developer came along and bought the properties, those three, you could have uh, between 36 and 40, 48, which would radically change the the essence of that that area. Now, there are other blocks adjacent to that where exactly the same thing could happen. And going across Timawana Road, you've got uh, properties there of three thousand square meters, so you could build on half that. It's fifteen hundred meters, three stories, um, yeah. and probably people would be looking at an apartment of say roughly nine hundred meters. So, the essence of the district will has the possibility of changing very radically.
0: Yeah, and it's it's a massive change. It must be a,
1: a problem trying to work out a long-term plan when you suddenly got this bombshell forced on you. Yeah, How and, do you cope with it? Well,
0: I think in terms of like three waters, we've known that's been coming in terms of conversations between local government and central government for a couple of years now. So that at least we had some heads up of what the direction of travel was likely to be. And I guess the big question was whether it was going to be mandatory or not. And that was the big announcement that came out last month was that three waters is going to be mandatory. Which made sense because I think the government realised that a they were losing a lot of councils opting out or indicating they were going to opt out, and they're like, "Well, actually, this we're advocating this reform as a, a benefit for the whole country." So actually, Parliament has to make that decision. In terms of this um, this uh, amendment to the Resource Management Act to allow more housing, that was definitely out of the blue. No one was sort of aware it was happening. I didn't even get any sort of whispers out of my various contacts uh, down in central government. But I think that's very much a response to what we've seen in terms of housing affordability, which has just gone wildly out of control in the last, um, well, essentially the last 30 years, but in particular the last 20 we've seen, essentially coming out of the Asian financial crisis after 1999. Housing affordability has just got worse and worse and worse.
1: Capital was nearly 40% rise in the last year.
0: Yeah, so that sort of thing, it's... I mean it's not sustainable for a housing market but it just refuses to pop at all that bubble uh, and you get to the point where actually people are so leveraged that you you don't want the bubble to pop anymore because that would be economically uh, economic catastrophe for the country so you need to do some sort of big step change to get more supply coming up to catch up with things so that's what the government is trying to tackle with this there are some big issues in terms of how it gets implemented um, and I think you touch on those really well because the, the as we understand the legislation at the moment, it is three dwellings of up to, you say three stories, but you could, and technically, there's, they've hinted that there's going to be regulations in there that will allow you to, you could have four stories if you've got a specifically designed roof in there and that sort of thing. But what no one's clear on is that does that mean that, like on my 800 meter section down at Paraparumi Beach, can I put three dwellings of three stories on there? But does that mean that a 3,000 square meter section in Waikana can only have? three dwellings or three storeys in there, and that doesn't seem very consistent. So it's that sort of thing that people, well, presumably the government and councils will be working through now at breakneck speed, given that the legislation's I think it's gone for its first reading in the House and has gone to select committee. So this is going to be the big thing, the big challenge for us. What's useful for us, though it's quite amusing because we were literally going out for consultation on our um, district growth strategy when this got announced, um, is that it generally confirms that the direction of travel we had in the district growth strategy was probably the right one. The big change is that it's that three dwellings to three stories applies to all your general um, residential areas. So it's no, it's whereas we were sort of focusing stuff around town centres or around um, the mass rapid transit nodes, so essentially your train stations, this is going to see a much broader um, enabling of that growth. And there's, The resource consent part of it is even interesting as well. People are trying to figure out does that mean you've still got to get building consent but then presumably if you're going to sell off these houses you're going to want to put them on separate titles so you're still going to have to subdivide which still requires a resource consent. So there's a whole lot of devil in the detail that we're going to have to work through but it is very much I think it's viewed as a big circuit breaker for the housing crisis because nothing else has seemingly worked so far and this is where they're hoping to get the bang for the buck finally.
1: It's quite funny because ever since I've been running this program, I've talked to quite a large number of councillors and the mayor, um, and I've broached the subject of why hasn't Carperty encouraged uh, at least two-storey dwellings in, in new housing developments? Mm. And they all said it was ridiculous.
0: Well, that's uh, I, I can understand that, but for me, as someone who grew up in Wellington, I've lived in Melbourne, I've lived in London, I'm... I'm just used to this as part of the course. And I'm used to the communities that build around it and they still have unique identities. You know, you go into Wellington, people in Newtown will tell you they're completely different from people in Kandala. And so the the unique identity of towns isn't going to get erased. It'll change, but all your towns will still have unique identities. What's been interesting, I think, in the last couple of years is just how much the medium-density provisions we've had have started to take off. We've seen in Rolmati, the old fire station there, got converted into seven townhouses. Uh, Just down by the links at Paraparaumu Beach, I think there's five three-storey townhouses that have gone in there. There's two big developments are going in around Paraparaumu Town Centre. Now, they're only two-storey townhouses, but there's a hell of a lot of the townhouses going in there, and they're selling for upwards of a million dollars, some of them. So... The last couple of years has just seen a transformation, I think, in the way that uh, the provisions that we already had in our district plan for medium density housing basically hadn't really been touched, but now they're starting to explode. And these are going to come along and uh, in theory make it a lot easier to do that stuff, especially if the Resource Management Act reforms go through, as is currently indicated, and there'll be a lot fewer grounds for people to object to resource consents in the future. So things like um, view shafts or shading or things like that will suddenly not become grounds that people can object to a development on. So the whole game is going to change in terms of what we've been used to for the last 30 years. So it's one of those things where 30 years down the track we'll be finding out very rarely what the impacts of this were. But right now, when you look at the housing crisis and how disastrous it has been for those who don't already own a house. And that's the crucial thing, is that if you own a house, you've done well out of the housing crisis. You know, our home, we bought it for about $427,000. Now it's apparently worth $1.2 And that's was that's eight years. It's earned more than I have in eight years. It's just ridiculous.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Totally doesn't make sense. But there are two smallest developments in, in Waikanae where I thought that they were an absolute Monty. To put um apartments on both of them were less than five minutes' walk to the train mm. station, and yet they've all had single story standalone houses put on them, and it I felt it was just utterly stupid yeah, well part of it However, will be the market I was, I was whistling in the wind <laughs> but, but these changes are I must have known something <laughs> um Green buildings, what, what's Council doing about green buildings with their own properties?
0: So we have been doing an audit in terms of the energy efficiency of our buildings, so there are bits and They're pieces going on. That's a problem. Is things like swimming pools aren't necessarily great for energy efficiency in the first place. There is stuff underway to look at um, better, say, solar so up in Ootake. Um We've obviously had, uh, there's been the solar plant that's gone in for the wastewater treatment plant here in Paraparaumu, I think it's it Energize Autaki has put one in at the wastewater treatment plant up there, so there's moves like that happening at the moment to try and improve energy efficiency in the buildings. Um, but we do have a challenge in terms of, I guess, the age of some of the buildings were put in place before a lot of the more recent energy efficiency regulations came in. So there is a there's a big challenge to go back and retrofit some of those over time. So that's part of the parcel of work we've got going on in terms of our response to that climate change emergency declaration, mm. which was made back in. I think it was May 2019.
1: I would have thought that the council building in Parapramu would have been an absolute cracker for solar heating for um, both the building and the um, water heating because it's in constant use during the day and it faces north and it's got a big surface area.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not an engineer, so I can't, I don't know what the specific limitations would be around that or the issues around retrofitting it in, but it's one of those things that you'd expect to get looked at in sort of the, the coming months as we work through the, um, because mm. Ret- it is, it ties into the council's climate change response. Mm. So.
1: Retrofitting is no big drama.
0: We say that, but then you look at some of the, some of the dramas that councils have had around the country trying to do remedial work on buildings and that, and um, I always, I'd like to urge on this, this version, the side of caution on these sorts of things um, w- without knowing the full details about what might be involved in t- terms of that.
1: Okay, what's happening to the community centre in Paraparaumu?
0: So, at the moment, I understand that most of the tenants there have been um, have vacated the building because obviously there was uh, mold, toxic mold discovered within it and my understanding is that it's there's an assessment going on to see whether it can actually be saved or not i think it's leaning on the side that it probably can't be saved so that's where in the long term plan we've got money set aside to work through what we actually do with that space in terms of making sure we do have some sort of community center there going forward um so fun, there's we fund this funding in there in terms of the Developing proposals for that, there's a whole lot of land that council owns that extends out of the back of that and to the south, all the way down to the uh, Wharimaku stream and follows the bend of that round. So there'll be questions around how you could incorporate that into that. So that's that's a long term question. The issue that we're looking at now around that is is if we have to demolish that building, and it is looking pretty likely that we will have to, is how do we how do we build back better, and what other facilities could we attach to it?
1: It's quite interesting because it was designed by a reputable designer. It was built by a reputable builder, and it was passed by council. How did it happen?
0: Well, long before I was up here, I was at school back then, so so unfortunately I can't answer that question.
1: (laughs) It makes you wonder, though, doesn't it? It does.
0: It does. Um, I mean, the age of the building falls right into that when it was constructed was in right in the middle of that leaky building saga but I don't know enough about that side of the, um, of, in terms of its design and building to know what sort of issues may have come out of that or not or whether it's, it's just been some other freak occurrence there or something. So.
1: Mm. And what's happening to the Waikanai Library? So that's
0: another one of the big uh, infrastructure projects we have in the long term plan and that's got funding set aside to build presumed, well, whether it's a new one on the current site or a new one on a different site. There's been a community group working across uh, the preferences of that. So at some point they'll come back to report to us on council in terms of where that's getting to. But, yeah, there is funding set aside to, to get a new library here.
1: But the building itself is sound, isn't it? Apart from a problem with the roof.
0: I Again, not being an engineer, I'm not 100% on the situation with that, but I guess it's a question of whether... You take the risk of trying to remediate that roof and still having issues another ten years down the track or something like that, or whether you can actually build something much better, especially in terms of what modern libraries are doing. Um, Foxton's got an amazing example of what can be built there. Uh, Johnsonville, my old stomping ground, they relocated the library there, right across to the other side of town there, and they've got an amazing facility there now. And um, And that's part of the discussion that's going on, is that libraries, you've Mm. obviously still got your book issuing and those fundamental things, but now libraries are starting to incorporate a lot more community spaces in there and also um, sort of social enterprise spaces. And and a lot of businesses are actually starting to operate out of libraries because Mm. people are working from home more and they need those sorts of facilities. So Mm. there's all those sorts of things that are starting Mm. to get built into the discussion around what to do. And it might mean that that existing building isn't suitable for those sorts of things that you want to to actually include in that sort of new mm. building,
1: the Levin Library is probably a prime example of how it can work.
0: Yeah, and that's the thing. There are there are amazing examples popping up of the way that libraries mm. have changed, and that's one of the things where when we make that decision about where the site is and whether we can reuse the new building, all that sort of stuff will feed into the, making that
1: decision. Mm. Would there be a possibility of including um, dwellings on top?
0: I've heard that mention. Um, I again, I don't, I don't know what the particulars. Are. It would ultimately be a question of how much that would add to the cost, and what you'd actually whether you'd look to maybe do um, social housing on top, or would, would you do private dwellings that you'd sell off to help fund the construction? Um, that's something that would need to be worked through. Hmm. It's not a silly idea when you think about if you're having a library in a town centre, and it's only a couple of minutes from the tra- train station, and you want to encourage more people to live around your town centres because of the ease of access to public transport and because it supports the businesses there and the community vibe around there. That's a sort of interesting Well, there's a
1: cohort of population now that would jump at the chance of living in a place so convenient.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And to be, I mean, I'm a little beyond that cohort now, but there are a lot of young professionals and younger families who are looking at, they can't afford to buy in Wellington Central anymore or they... They don't necessarily want to because of, say, earthquake issues down there. Um, they're limiting the availability of housing stock there, so they're coming and looking out, out here. And that, other than obviously retirees who are still growing strongly in terms of our population demographics, the next fastest growing area is that young professional, young family bracket. So,
1: and what's happening to that vacant land that you've purchased or the council purchased in Paparamu Beach? I would love to know
0: the answers to that too. As of yet, we're but just... You're we're, you are a councilor you should I know, are. I know. We're still waiting for them to come back with... Uh, the, I know they're investigating possible options for it in terms of the site and the limitations on it and how they could get around that, and that's, we're still waiting for that report to come back. But I suspect that's been one of the things that's been um, put on the back burner with all those other big changes in terms of three waters and everything else that's sort of cropped up, um, COVID as well, obviously, over the last uh, couple of years.
1: Hmm... It was an interesting thing to, for council to purchase.
0: Yes, I was. I was very I, surprised about it, and because um, I still I,
1: wonder about the logic of it.
0: Well, I was obviously um, campaigning to get on council at the time, and it was one of those things that. When it came out, it came out because the uh, person selling it announced that they sold it to council. Um, so there wasn't any public announcement about who had bought it, and suddenly there's a whole lot of speculation about why, and that hasn't helped any of the discussions around it as well. And that's one. That, I guess it's a broader issue around how councils conduct themselves that will hopefully come up in that big uh, review into the future for local government as well in terms of the openness and transparency of councils. So
1: it's not transparent at all.
0: Yeah, well, wow. that's exactly why it's one of those things where there are commercial considerations in terms of um, prices paid and that where you, you've you got to respect the other party and that sort of thing. But yeah, in terms of why it's been built and that at the time it wasn't articulated but particularly. Should
1: council be involved in commerce?
0: Oh, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. To some extent, can there will always be involved like say at a swimming pool, you've got a cafe. If you can't get someone to operate the cafe there, you're going to be doing it. Um, it's that debate around the core functions of council. And I think generally councils should try and stick to their knitting unless there is a clear gap in the market where they can at least temporarily provide something that isn't being provided. But generally, I mean, outside of um, some pretty, say, uh, civil engineering stuff that you say say, a big councils used to have in terms of their works depots and that sort of thing, even that got privatised out. So it's one of those things is... Um, Yeah, councils don't really have too much in the way of trading companies nowadays unless they own big pieces of infrastructure. Especially
1: speculating.
0: (laughs) Well, exactly, exactly.
1: Hmm. All right, let's leave that. (coughs) Uh, One thing that's bugged me that sometimes happens that shouldn't happen is that the road along Parata Street alongside Ryman's is too narrow. And it was allowed to be developed in a too narrow state. And a lot of the new subdivisions are all narrow. Mm. However, there should have been some recognition of the amount of traffic going to and from Ryman's because you've got 400-odd people living there plus um, a large number of staff. So it's actually quite a busy road.
0: Yeah, um, it's actually where I'm popping down to after this is to pop down right. there to well, meet with them to, to talk about that exact issue in terms yeah. of the bus route that goes down there and the issues right. they're having with parking. So.
1: Well, prior to the bus being put in, we got circularised about what we thought of the concept of um, how narrow the street was for buses, etc. And I put in the submission, which was totally ignored. And lo and behold, there's a set of yellow lines suddenly appeared on the eastern side of the road where all the staff used to pack. (laughs) And you will observe when you go down there that there's probably at least 40 vehicles packed along the length of the the road, which isn't a problem. It never was a problem, except it now is a problem because on the eastern side of the road... uh, the vehicles being parked didn't obscure the vision coming in and out of Ryman's. Now, coming out of Ryman's, you cannot see up the road, and it's dangerous. Mm. And it's just a case of sheer stupidity through not looking at how things actually work.
0: Yeah, and this is one of the tensions we have in terms of central and local government, is central government can set these minimum standards for road widths and that sort of thing, and then council can say so actually we would like it, it wider, but then when it come, push comes to shove, R ones are recommendations. Central governments are the, the legally mandated things, and developers can push back on them. And that it is just diabolical. And it's like you said, it's it's one of these things that leads to these ridiculous situations, like we now have there.
1: Yes, indeed. The thing was that um, they only use a little bus, which is actually quite small. Mm and it's, it's, I don't think it's any wider than the Ryman's Bands. And we get a, a very large rubbish truck in there virtually every day, which never used to have a problem. However, enough griping on a personal <laughs> basis. Uh, we've run out of time, Gwen. Been glad, good to catch up with My you. My pleasure. And we'll see you again next month. Thank you very much. This has been another session of A Political Point of View with Graham Priest. Today's guest, Gwyn Compton, KCDC Councillor. Thank you for listening.
0: You have been listening to Political Point of View on Coast Access Radio 104.7 FM. In this programme, we've talked with politicians of all types, of all sorts, from local government through to central government